The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Where there's a whip, there is a way. Where there's a... no singing? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was tempted, but I don't think our audience wants to hear me sing, so... Cause... I don't think they want to hear me sing either, but... Well, they're, they're... Okay, valid point. Um, you know, actually, that song has been stuck in my head since I saw it as a teenager. <laughs> It, it, it really has. First, that's the only thing I actually remember out of the Bakshi version of The Hobbit is where there's a whip, there's a way. Oh, wow. And I think, you know, that was the one thing that the original Hobbit did, I'd say, that was actually, I can't say better, but I think was an element that the modern one lost when they did the live one was the music. Yeah. Like the I story is meant to be very musical, not as in the, you know, um, cats sort of way. Oh, God, no. <laughs> um, but, in, but in the um, sense that this is supposed to be a setting where just like in the quote-unquote real old days, people sing a lot. Like human, yeah. you know, if you want to hear music, you had to sing it yourself. And so people sang. And that was a big part of culture at the time. Yeah, actually, that's not the uh, Bakshi one you're thinking of. It's the Rankin-Bass one. Oh, okay. Sorry. Thanks. Thanks for correcting me on that one. And that okay. song is, isn't from their Hobbit. It's from their uh, Return of the King. Oh, okay. Well, I'm totally wrong then. But I only, I just remember watching some of it as a kid. And, and where there's a whip, there's a way stuck in my head. <laughs> um, just because, come on, that song's just awesome. <laughs> um, for the In case you're wondering, folks, it's um, the main characters basically see a troop of orcs marching some prisoners along, if I remember, or slaves. And they... Are singing this where there's a whip, there's a way song as they go. The orcs, not the prisoners. <laughs> yeah, basically. At least I don't think the prisoners are singing anyway. It's been a while. <laughs> I'll link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And now that we're completely off topic, <laughs> let's get to our actual topic. Although I guess maybe it's not completely off topic. Nope. Um, so here's the deal. I right now am engaged in uh, writing a... Um, a long story we'll call it maybe an, it might turn into a novel series we'll see what happens and my series is basically about caravan guards it's set in a low fantasy setting and it's about the caravan guard who are basically the 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 cops that die in every episode of everything in <laughs> of the fantasy world except i actually want to make them the main characters because i thought and have been fascinated for a long time by the idea of how do these caravan guards get this cargo through dangerous territory to wherever they're going? I mean, I think that that's actually got a real interesting angle to it. It's, there's, it's a real challenge. I mean, look, think about it this way. If you're a caravan guard, that means you are the lowest information person in this situation. I mean, hmm. you've got bandits and raiders that are all around you hiding in the forest or whatever, and... They know how many of you there are. They know where you're going. They are, they're in a position to ambush you. 
And you literally don't even know what's coming until someone drops dead of an arrow next to you. And then suddenly there's guys running at you and more arrows and you don't know how many there are and you don't know what's going on. And yet you have to hold your ground and somehow you'll fight these guys off maybe and deal with um, a deal with an enemy. You don't know what their real objective or goal is and what they're trying to do to you. And somehow you have to save the cargo and... Yeah, I, I just think that's fascinating. Hmm. And so I decided I want to uh, do a story about these guys. And so uh, I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been working on the story for a little while, actually, as of this recording. And I ran into an interesting problem that, yeah, the caravan guards' lives are, they're really um, horrifying in a tough position. Yeah. What? Horrifying. <laughs> horrifying. It really is, actually. They're in a really tough position. And so I wanted to uh, talk with Don, and I thought it would, this would be fun to turn it kind of into an episode about the tactics that they could use and the uh, best way to deal with their um, situation. Like as caravan guards, you know, what can these guys do to not die <laughs> and to actually you know, to put themselves in a good position relative to their opponents? And keep in mind, caravan guards... So they're escorting a caravan that may just be all people carrying packs. There may be wagons. There may be carts. It depends on the nature of the caravan that's going. And they're traveling sometimes for days through hostile or unknown territory or, you know, territory where they don't know if there's someone around. And yet they somehow have to get the cargo through. And so they're tired and they don't know when there's attack coming. They don't know if ever one is coming. I mean... You No wonder in reality, from what I've been able to find out, being a caravan guard was one of those things that basically um, soldiers and deserters did basically just to survive, basically. Mm. Or after, if there was a war, you know, once the war was over, they like, they need to survive. So this was how they made money, basically. Mm -hmm. um, being caravan guards was definitely not a glamorous position. And it was definitely not one that most people would want to do for obvious reasons, because it's not a, it's not a safe job at all. <laughs> Um, and then if we stick it in a fantasy setting, which mine is set in, although mine is a low fantasy setting in the sense that there's no uh, human mages or that, or at least not that are relevant to the story, um, but there are some weird creatures and such. So, yeah, you've even got your the possibility of your caravan being attacked by a freaking dragon. What do you do then? Die. <laughs> well, you run is what you do. <laughs> or, or die. Yeah, die. So... Anyway, so um, th so this is my situation, and so since Don has a little bit of a tactical mind and some background in uh, um, military thinking, um, I thought that uh, I'd uh, consult with him and make kind of a little bit of an episode about it. Mm. Okay, that's enough of me ranting. Don, what are your thoughts? Um, thinking on this, like I kind of thought from the uh, the D and D perspective. Because mm -hmm. again, reasonable, yeah. Because like tabletop gaming is kind of my shtick, mm -hmm. and that gives kind of a structured beginning to look at it, right? Because when you talk about a mass movement, which mm -hmm. say uh, a large caravan would be, or if you're like say going to war, and mm -hmm. we're starting from a medieval perspective kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, the three big concerns that you have to look at would be uh, tactical. Command mm -hmm. and control, mm -hmm. and logistics. Mm -hmm. So I kind of looked at it like that, 
um, tactical is what everybody thinks of when they think of stuff like that. It's it's your actual on the ground, the scene you'd play out in the game, fighting, attacking kind of thing. Right. Yet the raiders show up and they attack the caravan and the guy, and you the guys fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, command and control takes into account stuff like um, issuing orders and mm-hmm. coming up with your plans and how the leaders maintain their formation. Mm-hmm. Right. And then logistics is all the stuff nobody ever thinks about. Like, how do we get food and where does everybody poop? Right, yeah. Which gets to be a problem in a hurry. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. And traveling for a long distance, there's no question that I assume that most caravans would probably have at least one cart or wagon that is basically just the stuff for the caravan guards. Like, they would have to have probably their own wagon or something to to carry their water, to carry their rations, to carry the other things they need, most likely. Oh, it'd be more than one. Because um, essentially for every, say, like, fighting troop, mm-hmm. you need, like, two or three other people. For every soldier or for every, like, unit? Well, for every soldier kind of thing. Because you got to, depending on how you want to set up your tech level... Mm-hmm. there's a lot of things to take into account because uh, food and water is like the obvious one. Right, yeah. Because you think how much uh, water a person goes through a day. Because mm-hmm. you're not just talking about um, drinking. You're talking about, say, mm-hmm. food preparation. Right. And hygiene. Hygiene's a big part of that, too. Definitely. If, you, if you're not, like, scrubbing, your, your bits fall off. So actually, no, interesting thing. So when I was doing my research, um, some things I looked into were uh, the armed escorts, basically the caravan guards of China. And when the and I actually found a set of rules that they followed uh-huh. back in those days. OK, and one of the rules was you don't wash or take a bath until you reach your destination. And the reason they did this was because the dirt and the oil on your skin is actually protecting your skin. Especially if you're out in the dust and in the dry environment in the sun, your skin you'll get sunburned basically. Your skin will be will be turn will be torn apart by the environment. Right. And so the yeah, the dirt and the oil is acting as a protective thing for you. So they yeah, so they didn't actually do that until they reached their destination. That was one of their rules. Huh. Which, it, it works depending on your environment. Because remember, if you're in, like, yeah. a forested area, mm-hmm. it can have the opposite effect. Because it could attract the bugs. The bugs. And not to mention, um, depending on what grows there, mm-hmm. you can actually get, like, different kinds of, like, uh, like parasitic, like, kind of plant and fungal parasitic parasites that'll, attra- like, attach to your body. Right. And you have to wash them off or, yeah, I see your point, yeah. Or scrape them off because there's there's different things you can you you can do, mm-hmm. uh, depending on again depending on tech level, right? In a medieval society, most people didn't bathe more than like you know once every two weeks anyway. Yeah, generally, I mean we have this idea uh, that medieval people didn't bathe, but I was I was just uh, reading if I remember right something about that not too long ago that actually no the Europeans actually loved bathing Mm. they loved it very very much the problem is is that i think it was about the 16th or 17th century um the church basically came to the realization that people were not just bathing they were actually having sex in these (laughs) in public baths and things like that and they decided oh these are places of sin Mm -hmm. 
And so that was one of the reasons they shut them down. I think also there was a plague involved as well. But um, they, yeah, they, at one point in Europe, they, they loved the heck out of bathing. They actually, there restaurants apparently were very common where you were actually in a tub of water and they would bring you the you like and everyone around you was in these like springs or tubs and they would bring you these floating plates of food and everything so you <laughs> you'd sit there and you'd eat and you'd talk to your friends as you're bathing naked there and everything and, and drink and etc that was super popular in europe yikes <laughs> i can only imagine how dirty that water was but you know um, if it was set up like some of the more natural springs I've seen in Asia, that wouldn't entirely be a huge problem mm-hmm. because it, the water is usually you've got the water coming from the spring and then the water at one end and at the other end, the water and the extra water is pouring out, you know, a drain basically. Yeah. So the water is constantly being refreshed, sort of. Yeah. As it goes. I mean, you know, whatever it gets, you know, float, uh, sticks to the bottom is still there, you know, <laughs> but I've been, but if it goes like a lot of the Asian baths I've seen, every now and then they'd stop them up, you know, drain them out and scrub them on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, that can be that. That's kind of the bathing thing is sort of a weird thing. Hmm. Because it, it, it again, when you go back historically, depends where you were. Yes, very true. Like a lot of Asian places were kind of like Europe that a bath wasn't necessarily a hygiene thing. It was kind of like mm-hmm. a luxury. Right. You did it for kicks. Like. I could see that. Yeah, okay. Because um, I, I should probably clarify a little tiny bit more about my setting. Because, again, I'm going with the idea, actually very similar to both Europe and Asia, that um, my the my characters are, for the most part, guarding smaller caravans. Mm-hmm. And they're traveling like between mountain valleys and things like that, between different settlements and such. Right. But the thing is, they're usually not more than a day or so away from the next settlement that the the merchants they're guarding are trading at okay? okay so from a logistics point of view i didn't you know this is why i should mention so it's not like they're traveling through the great gobi desert for five weeks before they actually see another human being <laughs> this is a car these are caravan these are small caravans or convoys whatever you want to call them that you know maybe about you know 20 wagons or so at most mm-hmm. and they're going through drop visiting different settlements and trading and dropping things off etc and so as they go to each settlement, they can buy new things. They can actually uh, get food, water replaced, etc. Usually within a day or so of of travel at, at a time, mm-hmm. and you, so they're only so they're they're going through the woods between valleys and the mountain passes and everything, and then they're going to the next valley, and there's you know settlements there, and they trade with them, and then they move on, and they do this for like weeks at a time, but they're still going from settlement to settlement, basically. Right, because that brings up uh, another question. Mm-hmm. To concern yourself with, if they're doing that, they're obviously taking established routes. Yes. So, what kind of facilities, like pertaining to say, travel and protection, are already established on those routes? Well, my idea is is that they're actually operating on the fringes of what was a great empire. Well, is a great empire actually, but they're kind of in the far territories of it, where things are still kind of wild. And so the most of the settlements they're visiting are within a, just within a few generations. So they're still developing. It's an actual area that's just starting to kind of develop. Plus, they've still got lots of like, you know, there's lots of areas that are not developed. You know, so we got wandering monsters and things coming in, etc. as well. 
Um, so the roots are there as in the sense, I see what your point, like things like roads or trails or that, they do actually have roots and trails that they're following that have been used for, let's say, a few decades at this point. But they're not actual, like I said, there are large gaps where they're just traveling through forest or mount over, you know, rocky passes and things like that. So they're out in the wilderness for a fair amount of time between the settlements, usually a day or two between each. Right. Sometimes a couple days. So it's my intention again being this is a fair, this is a you know somewhat wild environment where they definitely need protection like the caravans can't it's not so civilized that the caravans can't go without protection because there's some soldiers there or something like that because no they're out in the fringes the empire really does not give a crap about about this area they're not going to send soldiers to take care of it the only soldiers are whoever you can hire to take to guard your guard your stuff basically right at least that's my take on it because I thought that would make the most interesting setting for these kinds of stories. Because if they're in the core of the Empire, yeah, there's not going to be that much interesting action happening. That'll be more intrigue-based uh, than it will be about you know, encountering like wild bandits and monsters and things like that. Right. Because if you're doing it like that, then mm-hmm. you got to wonder if they're using established like roots, yes. who's maintaining them? Like, who's responsible for those roots? That's an interesting point. Um, they wouldn't really be using... I, I guess they're just basically roots that are used a couple times a year, and maybe the locals use them a bit. Right. And that's kind of about it. Like, they're not really... Um, like, they're not highways. They're not proper roads for the most part. I mean, they'd have to be proper enough that the wagons could get through. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of about it. Oh, I should want to add one other thing that I haven't mentioned about my setting. Um, in this setting, horses are actually only really owned by the nobility and are actually fairly rare and expensive things. Okay. So the caravans are not using horses. They're using oxen, which, again, precedent for in real history, that was more common. than Horses were pretty valuable in, in most of human history. Yeah. So they did not use them. They used oxes or other uh, other things instead. So the caravans are moving at a relatively slow pace because of that. They're basically moving at maybe slightly better than walking pace. Right. At most. And yes, that's that. that is a good point. I mean, I just as generally assumed that over the decades, these certain road, dirt roads have kind of become packed down and that they're they're pretty rough, filled with potholes in them, but they are there. Mm-hmm. So there are certain routes that they're following. And there might be more than one depending, like the, I'm assuming the settlements are also trading with each other. So they are using these routes as well. Okay. Um. Because what's going on is is that my main uh, the my characters are based in this place that's basically just on the edge of a mountain of the mountain range basically. So they're based on kind of the last settlement that's kind of the bridge between the lowlands of the you know the empire and the high you know going up into the highlands of the mountain ranges and such right right and the, so. The idea is that the characters are going to have to deal with their, so they're based just on the edge, but then they have to go in as part of these uh, merchant expeditions that they're guarding to help deliver stuff, which, and this goes on a couple times a year, they do the route, Mm -hmm. Um, which by the way, there are multiple precedents for, in fact, we do that today in Canada, actually. There's a show called High Arctic Haulers. Right. It's on CBC right now. It's a reality TV show, which is about these boats that are these giant cargo boats that are going out uh delivering to all the na- to all the native settlements up in northern canada right 
And so there's kind of precedent for that kind of thing. And they do this uh, a couple times a year. They just go from native settlement to native settlement, delivering all the stuff these guys have ordered on Amazon and things like that. Right. And so that's kind of what I'm doing, except they're going through, you could say, very dangerous waters. So they need so they need guards to handle this. And so my questions were things like, well, let's let me toss a few questions then. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I was thinking, okay, well, what would be the best armor for people in this environment to wear? Because it's uh, in my setting, it's basically the equivalent to like, you know, about Germany, like Central Europe, basically, like mm -hmm. weather wise. Right. So in the summer, it's pretty darn hot. <laughs> Right. So I could see in the winter, they could be wearing like, uh, they'll be wearing parkas, uh, they'll be wearing maybe gambeson, you know, which is like the padded armor, that kind of thing. That that actually is, that's not too hard. But in the summer, what do you wear? Especially if you know that you've got to do this weird balance where you could be called on to fight at any time. But at the same time, if you wear this, if you're wearing any kind of armor, you're going to get heat, heat exhaustion really quickly too. Right. And so it creates um, a bit of a problem that way, right? So, I mean, how do you deal with that? The, what do you, the, the best I've been able to come up with is that they, in the summer anyway, they might not wear armor at all. They might just do something like uh, hang shields on the sides of the wagons. And then when it's called upon, they can just pick the shield up, right? Yeah. That was what that was the tactic that I was thinking anyway. Is just to hang shields if there if there are wagons to hang shields on them. Um, I was thinking that they probably use a tactic very similar to what I think modern army use, where they'll have the like I said, the ox carts are only moving at the pace of people, right? Mm -hmm. So that they would spread the guards out so that there may be you know for every two or three wagons there'll be like one pair of guards, one on each side, walking along with them, right. Um, kind of because that way they'd be in a position, there'd always be a guard in a position to respond to, um, you know, a situation, so to speak. Uh, because after all, you're not going to have your, all your guards just sitting in one wagon at the back because that you're going to need, you could need them at any time, right? And of course, you have to deal with armor and uh, heat and issues like that. And of course, issues of exhaustion they're walking all the time or do they ride part of the time and walk part of the time which is what i assume probably they would do mm -hmm. and then there's weapons which are darn heavy too yeah so what weapons do you use we've actually brought up a whole load of things just in those little couple of ideas uh <laughs> I, I i told you i've actually been thinking about this like i've actually been trying to think this through and but i wanted to you know talk about it and have a have a slightly different perspective um, as I said, that might have been before the show, or maybe it is. I'm actually thinking of this from a semi-realistic perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, in in the story, I'm I didn't want this to be a story about great magical warriors doing stuff. I wanted this to be a story about uh, human skill and ingenuity and endeavor, because I think that, that can be just as interesting if you handle it right as the great magical warrior who goes out and saves the kingdom. Right. And I think if I'm going to focus on this human level stuff putting in the magic stuff, that's kind of cheating, right? So I wanted to avoid that. So that's why I said it's a low fantasy setting where magic is something that those weird guys off in the hills do or something like that. It's it's what Brendan Sanderson would call soft magic. Humans have no idea how it works and no ability to control it. So nobody's chucking fireballs. Nobody's like casting weird cursed spells or putting everyone to sleep. None of that crap. 
This is about people dealing with other humans and the environment and other things. And how do you handle this? And how do you prepare for these kinds of things? But, okay, sorry, I should take a step back <laughs> then. Okay, so, so what questions then or what issues do you, did I raise that you find interesting? Well, the problem that you run into, if you're being fairly realistic... Mm-hmm. When you talk about the seasons, especially because if you're saying these in the mountainous areas, yes, nobody's going anywhere in the winter. No, and I didn't think they would. Like, um, I was assuming that my, my, in fact, the story I'm working on takes place during the summer. Yeah, like specifically for that. So that's why I was thinking about heat issues and such. Yeah, summer would be when you're moving because in the spring there wouldn't really mm-hmm. be much to transport because you're just planting things. Right. Ah. Uh, and in the and in the early spring, the roads are too mushy to travel on anyway. Yeah, especially uh, if if they're if you're going with the idea that they're kind of um, semi abandoned. Hmm. Yeah, during those periods, right? And they're just used during the they're just used during the times when they're dry enough for people to walk on them. Yeah. Or travel on them. Yeah. And so and so basically, I was thinking the actual transport season probably lasts from like late spring to early fall. Yeah, because once because once you get your snows in there, you're done. Yeah, you got the problem too that if you're gonna say that the settlements are about a day's travel away from each other, Mm -hmm. it takes care of a lot of your your big logistics problems. Mm -hmm. But you've added the problem if the settlements are that close together and they have these generally accessible routes between them, you Mm -hmm. almost don't need caravans because farmers will be, if it's only a day's travel, farmers can take their own wares places. Yes and no. I mean, once you get deep enough in there, the settlements are fairly small. At least that's how I envisioned them. Like we're talking maybe, you know, a dozen families at most, right? Right. And so if you're, and what, what's happening is, is that the people that are coming in with the caravans are, they're bringing in the wares that the locals can't really make, like the blacksmith stuff. Um, they're bringing in uh, preserves. They're bringing in things that wouldn't be easily accessible by the people in those valleys, right? right? And they're trading them for the local produce and the local stuff. So they're bringing basically the goods of the empire into these va- into these settlements, and then the settlements are trading them back for you know all these other things they're making, basically. And that's how it's happening. It's not uh, they're not using coins to trade with each other. They're using barter. Yeah. Uh that work because the the problem that you get into though getting into like your your tactical mm-hmm. concerns if mm-hmm. if it's a rough area and you've got small settlements yes uh, they're going to get eaten by something really there's got to be some way that they're defending themselves mm, true because if if you went say the D D route mm-hmm. that the settlements are relatively small and relatively close together Right. But there's just crazy shit living in, in the wilds that wants to eat everybody. That could possibly work even better. That's a good point. Yeah. If, <laughs> Maybe I should do that. If you do that, what you what you then do is you can say that the the the, the towns are, are like little fortified settlements. I saw them as that anyway, yeah. And then that would be why you'd need the caravan, because you'd need something fairly fairly well armed to, to do the transporting. Right. Yeah, true. The only big concern from that, from a tactical point of view, if you did that, that would, Mm -hmm. if that's your environment, that means every town would have to have some kind of armed guard to protect the actual farmland. You're right. That's true. 
it, otherwise, yeah, like Farmer Bob is just going to get eaten when he goes out in the morning to. I would presume that what they're doing, and this just my guess, um, would be they've got the fortress town where everyone lives, and then it's surrounded by farmers' fields, basically. Like the people all live in the fortress, right? And then during the day, they go out and they tend the fields and such. And you're right, there'd have to be some people keeping watch and uh, watching out for you know monsters and shit. Um, and then at the end, you know, at the end of the day, they go back into the town, you know, and there's where, where it's all fortified and they're relatively safe. Yeah. The only thing you got to be careful of that though, is if you've got like, uh, the, the boogly monsters, when everybody's away from the crops could go out and vandalize them or just hide in them. That's true. And I, that would be a real danger that they'd be living with. And that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. You'd definitely, I think you'd still want some kind of like, uh, some kind of sentry. Well, yeah, each, each town, each settlement would probably have to have a guard. There's no question on that. They have a bunch of locals who act basically as the warriors to keep an eye on things. Yeah, what, what, I, what, because going back to like, like I said, I think of things in D&D terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I might look at doing is each settlement, like each town, mm -hmm. is almost like a little teeny, teeny, tiny fortified kingdom in its own. Okay, makes sense. And spread them out on the trail a little bit more. Make it so it's like maybe two or three days travel. Okay. Because that way what what you're you're doing, if there... Because anytime I set up a D&D &D campaign, when I'm mapping out the large area, I always start with the speed of a horse. Mm -hmm. Like how far can a guy on a horse get in a day? Because that kind of... That kind of is a good start for setting up your world because that will dictate how interconnected everybody is right yeah and how then once you get that that's how well your political system works that's kind of um how people deal with each other mm -hmm. like if backup is potentially only a day away right it changes things then whether or not because it sounds like you want each community to be kind of, you know what it almost sounds like is a uh, vampire hunter d Kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. That you've got the, the settlements are, are they're like little fortresses. And even if it's like, say, um, like a couple of homesteaders, mm -hmm. just a family or two, they're going to have like a little fortress. They're actually going to have some kind of like fencing or containment system, mm -hmm. like blocking their area in. Um, they might use animals like, like uh, domesticated dogs or, or whatever you've got. Yeah, definitely, yeah. As some kind of like sentry, but you'd have if if you space them out a little bit more, you you'll 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 you kind of if cuz yeah, if a day if it's only a day's travel between settlements too, that kind of begs the question, why hasn't some arsehole baron come in and taken over? Right. Cuz yep, cuz definitely. Cuz that goes now into the third point, the command and control. If the settlements mm -hmm. are that close together and some arsehole wants to come in and take over, it's pretty easy because if it's just a couple days away, he can send reinforcements and orders and get information really quick. Mm -hmm. If you if you space it out, once it gets like a week or two before I'm going to get feedback from, from my on-the-field commanders, that makes just coming in and stomping these guys a little trickier. Right. It's, especially if they're already fortified where they could put up a defense against somebody wanting to take over. Right, right. But... This is one of the problems I've actually run into uh, writing it is that I've constantly had to 
correct myself to think, no, these are not a bunch of adventurers who are going off fighting like, you know, evil warlords. These are just guys trying to get the goods to the market. <laughs> so I keep having to kind of correct myself and not and and not think of it just as a generic fantasy story. Yeah, but the thing is that in a lot of ways, they are adventurers. Like They kind of are, yeah, the, that's true. In real life, when people did mm-hmm. this, that was what the equivalent of like your fantasy game adventure was it was it was these guys it was the merchant marines it was you know the the explorers and the settlers and the colonists kind of thing right that's true okay that, and that's one of the reasons i find them interesting right is because at least the chinese versions of them a lot of people who became martial artists or um when you know went to you know com- there were different combat schools or ex-soldiers or that like well what do we do now and it's like well if you want to make money, you do escort work because, you know, China had a horrible problem with like banditry and such during certain periods. Yeah. And it was the only way to actually get your goods from A to B was to have some guys watching over it. Yeah. Cause China's a good example. Cause it was China unified ish fairly mm-hmm. early in their history. Yep. And it, 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 it's that idea. It was a huge territory and the, the, the people in charge, had a hell of a time maintaining that because of the size. Yep. It's com- and that's one of the things I'm heavily drawing on in this story, actually. Surprise. Knowing me, surprise. Yeah, it's, um, it's comparable it, to, like, the Romans. Yeah, basically, yeah. And that was why I said it on the edges of the Empire, because where the control was super weak, and they, they don't have a lot of... Um, you know, guards or that kind of thing. There's no, there's, there might be an imperial garrison somewhere around, but they're not really that close. <laughs> they're really just there to kind of stall whoever might come trumbling through the mountains at them at best. Yeah, they're until a real army can show up. Well, there's that, and there's also when if you use the Roman example, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the the garrison commanders way on the outlands became their own little dictators because. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be months before the emperor can get orders out here. So to hell with it. I'm the boss now. You know, mm-hmm. mm. very true. And then very very true. And then that would be if if uh, if for your setting, if that was something mm-hmm. that happens or had happened in you know the fairly recent past, that would be another reason towns would fortify, not just against like the orcs and the goblins, because we don't want that asshole empire sending another one of these dickheads that, you know, thinks he's Napoleon here to I'm gonna set you peasants right. You know, they don't want that yeah, either. That's true. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. I hadn't really thought too much about that, but actually that's a really good point. No, that is a good point. Um, I'd assume that most of the bandits that they're dealing with, at least the human bandits anyway, mm-hmm. are um, probably the result of either failed settlements or, I mean, you could get like, you know, groups of rogue soldiers or things like that too. But mostly people that have come from some of the poorer settlements raiding because, you know, they're... Se- their other option is to, you know, to uh, just continue struggling as poor farmers. It's like, or we could go raid that caravan, that, and there's nobody around to stop us. So hell, let's do that. Yeah, there's that. There could also be the idea if you use uh, historical Japan as an example, mm-hmm. right? That Japan at different periods had problems with banditry because you had the uh, like, like, like the the Warring States period. When that was over, you had all these dudes that were trained, experienced soldiers, and there was no war for them. Yeah, and all of the good military positions were like the local daimyo and his kids. 
Mm-hmm. So there was nothing else. So you'd get these little groups of bandits that were just, you know, ex-soldiers that all they knew how to do was fight. And there was no fighting mm-hmm. that needed to be done. So, yeah. Oh, no, that was a big problem. I'm actually reading a really good uh, manga that kind of deals with some of that. Um, there's a I don't have you ever heard of a manga called Azumi? Yep. Yeah. And uh, I'm reading a English translation of it right now. I have to say it's almost Lone Wolf and Cub level. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, the main character of Azumi is basically about uh, a young female. She, here, she's a ninja, is what she basically is. She's an assassin. They don't call. She's not really not a ninja in the conventional sense, but she's basically a, a female assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's but she's only like fifteen years old, basically about fifteen or so. But and it ta- but it takes place at the end of the. Um, the last great war. So it's the beginning of the Tokugawa Shogunate. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that re- comes up comes up a lot, actually, in the story is that there are all these bands of, yeah, bandits, basically, that are former soldiers. All these bands of ronin are wandering around, and the government is freaking out about what to do about these guys. Mm-hmm. And is basically scheming certain horrible ways to get rid of them in the in the story but that's you'd have to read it actually i, I highly recommend if you get the chance apparently there's like 350 chapters to the thing <laughs> it it won a ton of awards it ran for flipping ever yeah and that and that again too that's not unprecedented in real life like yeah a lot of that was again one of the reasons why when you look at somewhere like china or japan or even the roman empire mm-hmm they had this thing where they they would romanticize like the 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 venturing soldier yes and it was a good way to get people into their expeditionary army so they could go out and take over new lands yeah and then they didn't know what to do with them afterwards because you've got these people all fired up and and you know the the bushido spirit and all that good stuff and then when there's Mm. nobody to fight what do you do and if you look historically what a lot of these empires did was you would take from from the soldiery and you'd mm-hmm. you'd like make them senators or you'd start yeah. granting them land and that because it, it was that idea in times of peace especially when you get to like the 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 later stages of the feudal era in Europe or mm-hmm. the the Tokugawa period in Japan and that they discovered that there was much more wealth to be made f- from business instead of war it wasn't about conquering yeah. land and you would see the military guys kind of shifting over to that because it was mm-hmm. a way to sort of blunt the fangs of the tiger. Yeah. So that the yeah, definitely because there's there's plenty of like smaller smaller countries that you'll see the opposite happen. Mm-hmm. That the the local leaders will get them all get the people all fired up about war with usually some poor schmo next door that didn't see it coming, mm-hmm. and then afterwards when they um. <clears throat> when they ride that crest of xenophobia into into office and lifetime positions, they mm-hmm. don't know what to do with the soldiery. They kind of start ignoring them, and then you get a coup, and now like the leader of the army is is the new dictator. Yep. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a very common one. Um, another one which Japan actually did is so they finished the unification of Japan. They got this big army, and they're like, "Crap, what do we do?" And Hideyoshi's. One of the guys who helped establish the shogunate, his solution was, yeah, uh, let's go invade Korea. Yeah, <laughs> and so they so they used so which was a marginal success. 
um, that Hideyoshi's invasion was anyway. But boy, did it get rid of a whole lot of these guy of these extra guys. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's one of the things you'll see historically when you see like the the military commander take over. Mm-hmm. It's because they realize that that's what's been happening. Yeah, that they're being sent on all these like stupid bullshit excursions just because the the emperor doesn't want them around because he's afraid of them. Hmm. I can totally see that, and yeah, well, there's a long history of that of emperors being terrified of their generals once the war is over. Yep. Because there's a long history of generals taking over once the war is over. Yep. Okay, so I guess I should probably, going back to my situation here, so the way I see it kind of is this, is that the the convoys go along, um, you have the guards walking alongside it, uh, they've definitely got a cart for resting or for uh, storing their goods and things like that as well. So you've got this group of, uh, of military guards walking alongside them, or partly riding maybe as well. Um, you would probably have a scout that is walking ahead or is, is is going far ahead of them there might even be multiple scouts actually mm-hmm. i could see there being a far a long range scout because the scout is their best hope of avoiding ambush right uh, and kinda. then there'd probably be an interim one as well like what does an actual how does an actual military unit handle this uh now see there's different concerns again you, you've actually brought up a few different things Okay. Because uh, if they're using established trails and there's only a day's distance, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of traffic back and forth because the, the nearby towns are probably going to have people going back and forth doing like smaller trade right. or maybe professionals moving on. Depending on where they go. Some areas that would be true. Some areas where there's more distance, maybe not as much. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's one of the reasons if you want like like armed caravans, you're kind of gonna I'd, like I say, I'd space things out a little bit. Space things out and put in more boogly monsters. Got it. Yeah, because part, part of the problem too with, with if you're gonna say like they have scouts going ahead of the caravan, mm-hmm. which they might or they might not, again, depending on the distance. Mm-hmm. Is how are those scouts going to report back to the caravan? Ah, I was thinking that they'd have ways for leaving uh, hidden messages. Yeah, but so for example, you know, you put a so for example, they may be as they're you know they're walking along, they usually might you know snap a few branches on, on you know, on the side of the road that leave little signals basically that the or even drop a few colored rocks or something like something that wouldn't be noticed by an observer, but they are actually leaving a little message that you know there's trouble here, that kind of thing. Yeah, the problem with that though is everybody's going to know they're doing that. Uh, maybe that's true. And and again, it's it's not really like reliable. Okay. Like, like if if they're going, even if they're if they're say like say just like four hours ahead, mm-hmm. you're not gonna have any way of of contacting them unless like they're using horses, right? Because which they're not in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the problem that you've you've got too is that if you've got troops walking beside the caravan, mm-hmm. that slows it down a lot. Well, if it's an ox-pulled caravan, it's not going very fast to begin with. It's not... Oxes are, oxes are not that fast. Well, they're not, but they have more endurance than than a, than a, than a person than does. a human does. Yeah, they do. Yeah, definitely. Because a human can probably move about uh, at full, full, like, combat load net. 
they're probably on foot you can make like eight miles a day eight to say eight to twelve miles and then you'd have to stop and rest uh let's see oxen i just looked it up oxen had a top speed of about three miles per hour that's like a fast walk yeah, basically. So that's why I said people would probably just, they'd probably walk beside it partly for defense and partly because they're just bored. That's the way I figured. Yeah, because if, if they're going that slow, you're also going to probably have a lot of them going at the same time. Yeah, you would. It makes sense. So that's going back to like your tactical concerns. Mm -hmm. You're likely to see mutual support. Right. So the idea of like scouts and that might not be necessary because groups going the other way are going to give you like heads up on different conditions and that well that's a good point if they're going through the more trafficked areas that's definitely true yeah yeah there's also again if you've got that many people going mm -hmm. you might have if there's not a central authority watching over it you might have impromptu things pop up okay yeah like they're definitely you might have like the guild of the road war wardens show up that they would essentially be like um like traveling scouts for hire oh that's an interesting point yeah that could make sense that they might be going up and down and then for a few coins they'll give you a report of what's going on or they might actually have like way stations mm -hmm. where you could pull into a way station and maybe get like um limited very limited supplies <clears throat> but more than that you'd pay like a, a couple of coins and you'd get like the road report Oh, that, interesting. Yeah, okay. That every 12 hours, another one of their patrols would come in and give the report, and they'd pass that info along. Right. Because, again, if, if they're that close and they're familiar trails, they're going to be like a whole ecosystem unto themselves. Mm -hmm. That you'll see stuff like that. You'll see probably um, there'll be aid stations run by, like, the local churches looking for converts. I... I could see that, but I was trying to... I could see that for the more civilized areas, but if there are, as you say, a whole bunch of boogly monsters going between, in between, people would probably travel as in groups and travel as few as possible because you're not going to want... Again, depending on the boogie monster, boogly monster and wild wilderness you know, factor, um, you probably wouldn't want to travel much if you could avoid it because you know it's dangerous, right? Yeah, it's, it's true, but again, this is where like an ecosystem would develop. Mm -hmm. That if you've got the more civilized areas that once the season kicks in, they would be busy. They're probably seeing 24-hour traffic. And that's where you would get, like, the secondary things like the street preachers and the hookers and the the hawkers right. and that would just propagate along those areas during that time. And then as the season starts to uh, go sour, they'd thin out. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if you're going to have... Because this is the thing, if... Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, okay. If you're having, like, two that there's going to be more remote areas that take longer travel... Yes. There's going to be... There'd be a noticeable change in the, the wayside thing. So that when you're getting to that area where beyond this point is, like, the, the no-go zone... Right. That the, 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 the towns are spread out, so it's like a five- or six-day travel... The roads mm -hmm, aren't mm -hmm. as maintained. This is more remote. At the edges of those places, you're likely to see, like, um, you might have more fortified establishments. Right, yeah, the, definitely. The same in the busy areas. There might be inns that are little communities unto themselves. 
Right. And then when you get near that that no-go area, you might see things like blacksmiths or armorers, like guys that can at least sharpen your weapons for you kind of thing. Right, because you're going into the more dangerous areas. Yeah. 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 And that would be, again, going back to like the three categories, that would take care of a lot of your tactical concerns because um, a traveling medieval army would have blacksmiths in that that would maintain equipment because even like to keep an edge on a sword if you're constantly fighting is a lot of work Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't want your soldiers spending like you know four hours a day polishing their armor and swords if you could avoid it because that's more effort that would tire them out definitely yeah yeah and what you would see is those tactical concerns would become more acute when you're heading to the no-go areas and there would be an ecology of people springing up to take care of them for you Right. There might even be like uh, wayside um, magistrates that will do your will, official and legal like, mm-hmm. before entering that area. Wow. I have to say, Don, you're really good at this, thinking thinking this stuff through. I mean, I thought some of this already, but you're, you've really taken it to a level that I hadn't even thought of, actually. Well, because it's, it's, it goes with my, my peeve about how a lot of settings don't think things through. Mm-hmm. And it's because there's usually this focus on the tactical... Mm-hmm. And in real life, Definitely. real life, there's all kinds of weird human bits that come right. in. Because that idea of having your will prepared before you go, I don't know if they still do it, but back in like the 70s and that, if you were flying anywhere, you could get flight insurance out of like a vending machine. Oh, they still do. Yeah, do they? It, still, it still exists. Well, you, I don't think there's the vending machine thing. Maybe there is, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, they used to have these weird vending machine kiosks that you could yeah, yeah. You could get, like, you know, 20 bucks, and it's it, it, it would be, like, maybe 10,000 insurance, not something huge. But it would be, like... Well, you usually do it online these days. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's... Yeah, okay. But, yeah, and, that, and it, it would be things like that. Mm. Oh, just one little side note. I found a note here on, uh, this is from a Reddit post, but apparently it comes from uh, a book called Alexander the Great and the Logistics of the Macedonian Army, Uh published in 1978 uh, by D.W. Engels. And apparently a, um, let's see, an ox would travel usually about five hours a day at about two miles per hour Mm -hmm. with about 10 miles per day of travel. The cart would hold a thou- 1,000 pounds. A wagon would hold about 2,000 pounds or so. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes if they used multiple oxen, they could actually pull off longer travel. And so on good roads, they could actually get sometimes up to 20 miles per day. Yeah. With more with more wagon, with more horse, with more uh, oxen and such. And horses sometimes. they Of course, we're talking the real world. They use draft horses as well. Yeah. Though oxen were pretty common. So, yeah, we're looking 10 to 20 miles per day, basically. Yeah. So there's your speed, or there's there's my speed that my characters are going to be working at, etc. Okay. Yeah. It, Which is about human speed, too. It's all things that come about, because we've talked about this before, that mm-hmm. when me and my group, even back in the day when we were, like, kids and that, Right. We'd play like AD&D. One of the kicks we'd get is to bring in as many of the mechanics as possible. Uh-huh. And if you're actually using the encumbrance rules, mm-hmm. it does amazing things to how you perceive like a medieval kind of world. I bet it does because those are the rules nobody ever uses. Yeah, and, and it's amazing how quickly you get encumbered. I think they're a little severe, like the, the weight of, of body armor. Mm-hmm. Even heavy armor, once you get used to it, mm-hmm. it's not that limiting. Right. Um, 
But when you're looking at, like, you'll find, we killed the dragon, he's got, like, 30,000 gold coins. There's no way in hell your group is carrying them out. Yeah, I mean, how, well, this is why they had to invent, of course, the the magic carpets that carry things yeah. and the bags of holding and all that stuff, because that was to overcome all of that. Yeah, and, and there was also the idea that, and, and again, we've mentioned it, really old school D&D, when the party would go campaigning, it would be like, like five to 20 player characters mm-hmm. with two or three henchmen and porters and shit, and it was to carry all of these supplies, that it was... It, again, it, it puts you in mind of an actual medieval kind of traveling troop. Yeah. And it really does. It's it's not like it in the movies. Forsooth, we shall go to the kingdom of blah, blah, blah. It will be me, my buddy Henson, and three horses, and that's it for months. No, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. There is an amazing... Um manga that you can find translated right now called the dragon the hero and the courier Mm -hmm. i I sent you a link to that as well before and the guy is like a medieval nut who writes this thing and it's astoundingly detailed (laughs) um like it's like it's in terms of medieval society and a real ecosystem and everything like people are actually it's up to seven chapters have been translated now it's apparently got several volumes in japan Mm -hmm. We're, we're still we're barely catching up but, oh my god, it's... You know what it reminds me of? It's basically like a super detailed Discworld manga. Uh-huh. That's the best way to describe it. It's 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 basically like Discworld. Right. Because the main character is a, is a courier. But one of the... Uh, one of the stories, uh, probably one of the best ones, is one actually about a dragon. Uh, they're going hunting for a dragon. And the army that goes along with these people hunting for a dragon is just astounding Mm -hmm. and all the different role uh, all the different roles the characters have and every every person that's involved and it's literally like it's the warriors and then there's the army of logistics people to go with them yeah then when they finally like they're finally at war with the dragon there's all these people who are like there's actual people i learned uh do you know what a settler is Suttler, S-U-T-T-L-E-R. Do you know what a Suttler is? Oh, I don't remember. I've heard the term. See, this, I, I'd heard of it before, but this was the manga that actually taught me what a Suttler is. A Suttler is someone with basically, they're like a mobile variety store that follows an army. Oh, yeah. They're basically, it's just like a, a it's, yeah, it's a guy usually or whatever, family, whatever. They got a wagon. They follow the armies around and they sell stuff to the soldiers. Yeah. And to the people that are involved. And so that's one of the things that's happening here is that the, the soldier, we need more arrows. Quick, send someone to the settler to buy more arrows. And, um, and they're doing things like that. And because, you know, they, yeah, they're running out themselves. And so they need to, these logistical mercenaries that are basically following them around. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what goes on. And like I, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. I'll link to the story about it. And then the best part is what happens when they actually defeat the dragon mm-hmm. is because it just turns into a giant auction for the dragon's parts. Yeah. And then in the end, well, actually, I'm going spo- to spoil the end. There's the dragon, which is huge. They, 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 it ends up forming a new town. Mm-hmm. Just the people that are sh- that are basically slowly rendering and taking this dragon apart, and then selling things like dragon scales for armor, and what you can and you you can sell the dragon's bones for it. Literally, a whole town ends up forming because where this dragon was killed. Yeah. Just 
because there's so many people that are so long taking apart this dragon. Yeah. I could see that. It's like I said, it's astounding. I can't reckon. Well, here, I'll link to it in the show notes. I mean, this is probably my, like, and this guy is this super medieval nut. It really is. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's just really incredible. And it's, it's actually really funny too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably, probably one of my favorite new manga right now is the dragon, the hero and the courier. Right. Is what, the, is what the actual manga is called. But the dragon is only like in the second episode and it's dead. <laughs> so, so <laughs> it's really just about, it should have just been called the courier. Right. Actually, the hero is only in the second chapter too, and then he's gone too. So it's it's really just about the courier, because <laughs> that was much more interesting. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, but uh, yeah. So that's an example of a, a guy who really thought through his setting to the nth degree. But again, he's a medieval nut, uh, geek. So what's happened is he's you know basing it mostly off like a real medieval setting, and then just adding fantasy and game elements to it just to spice it up. Yeah, because there's a there's an old D and D module that kind of broaches that sort of thing. Oh, really? And that was a Earthshaker. Okay. For the companion rules were basically the... Oh, yeah. Were the gnomes of... I remember that. I remember the cover of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the gnomes have built this gigantic giant robot, basically. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the bad guys get a hold of it. And there's a section at the end because that was for the companion rules. And the companion rules had the rules for running a kingdom. Mm-hmm. And they talk about that, that if the players... in and don't manage to recapture this thing if they end up destroying it. Mm-hmm. There's a whole section about how that affects the resources of your kingdom for the next couple of months because this thing is a lot of like important minerals in one place. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, and just like the iron salvage off of it, not necessarily even like the valuables or the, the mystic components, the iron salvage ups your your certain resource ratings in, in the kingdom where this thing collapses. And then they talk about people laying rights to the uh the minerals of it and how to transport mm-hmm. it and that yeah it's that it's that same idea they kind of they kind of broached that idea that when when you see like a lot of like movies and stories mostly for expedite they don't get into mm-hmm. that but that's where the real story would be yeah yeah and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this story about uh, the characters that we don't normally focus on with, you know, heroic fantasy and such. Mm-hmm. Because I think there are a lot of good stories there. Yeah. And from the from, that, are, that come naturally out of settings and out of the more detailed parts of settings that people, for the most part, don't know what to do with or just ignore. Mm-hmm. Exactly thing, and yeah, you get into weird details like that about yeah, how does how does this you know monster being killed affect the local economy? Yeah, how do you deal with that? Or just how do you deal with a monster you killed that's full of valuable parts? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, so so and that's something else I actually did kind of think about a little bit when I was going back to my earlier question about what armor would they wear. Well, did I want to have you know we'll call it dragon scale armor for example that's like ultra light and not very um, well, I guess it would still be pretty darn hot if you used it in any way, shape, or form. But but it's relatively light, and they can wear, and it offers good protection. Yeah. And I decide the answer is no. Um, if there, if it does exist, it's fairly rare, just because it would just cause too many tr- problems. And also, I'm working with the low level guys. I'm not working with the big hero guys. Yeah. But that's definitely a consideration. Yeah. Yeah. This because this is the kind of thing where I think. Mm-hmm. Looking back at like uh, the 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 early gaming days, 
Mm-hmm. All of the stuff we're talking about is what the old school Advanced Dungeons and Dragons game was supposed to get into. Right. Like that was why they had all these weird detailed rules for encumbrance and that because it was supposed to add more of that tactical concern mm-hmm. and to feel more like a medieval setting. But again, because you had a lot of second generation gamers come in around that time, it kind of tended mm-hmm. to go the other way. Right. That for people it was about, you know, getting like the more powerful spell and the better armor kind of thing. Well, we talked about that in our previous episode mm. where it really just turned into uh, almost the early versions of like first person shooters, right? Yeah. Or hack and slash gaming. I guess that would probably be our murder hobos episode mm. um, where, yeah, you just ended up with these guys running around killing stuff. And because that's where the fun was for them. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a weird sort of shame because you can see now that you're, and this is very sword and sorcery because essentially what you're doing, cognating this story is digging back into like the dark past of the lost empires of fantasy storydom to, to retrieve all of those weird little fiddly bits that everybody kind of stopped caring about like a while ago. Right. Well, because I think modern fantasy, at least modern Western fantasy, has kind of, it's stuck. It's stuck in a bunch of ruts. It's kind of gone as far as you can go with a lot of those elements, the the high fantasy stuff. Yeah. And it doesn't really know what to do with itself. Yeah. I think it's working its way out of these situations slowly. I mean, I don't think I'm the only person who's thinking this way. I'm sure I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen too many, though, because people are too busy writing their Lord of the Rings knockoffs. Yeah. and. Uh, <laughs> Or or other occasional high fantasy stuff. There's not a lot of low fantasy being written right now. Yeah. What there is is often either romance or... Uh, yeah, there, there's some, but not that much. I don't think anyway. Listeners, if you, um, you know, if you know about some stuff, some good stuff being done, please uh, go come to ObeyTheDNA.com and leave comments in the show notes if you know about some good uh, low fantasy stuff being done. Although I do know that, uh, thanks to large part to Game of Thrones, which is, again, another basic low fantasy, almost sword and sorcery setting for the most part. Yeah. I mean, it eventually goes a little higher at the end. Spoiler, but it's basically low fantasy. There is a has been an interest in the last couple of years in low fantasy. Like yeah. a lot of people are doing more of it. I know there is some stuff about, like, say, mercenaries and that being done. You know, mercenary company thing, that kind. Of, but most of them do tend to go back to high fantasy tropes pretty fast. Yeah, because they're usually afraid to. Uh, actually, I, I no afraid is probably the wrong word. I think they're usually so used to doing the high fantasy stuff that they don't really know how to do the low fantasy. Yeah, I, I think because again, nobody thinks about all of these weird little fiddly bits. Mm, basically, they're too busy with the adventure and you know. Yeah. Kicking butt and everything. Which admittedly is what sells, so I can't entirely blame them. Yeah, I mean it's it's if you're gonna do something a little more technical, I think you'd have to kind of start small to get people involved. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. But I think it'd work, because pe- people like the weird little details. I think they do. I mean, I'm hardly a medieval expert. I'm learning a lot of this stuff as I go. I have been studying uh about, you know, historical martial arts and weapons and armor and that for a little while. And I don't mean from a, 
uh, I, I don't mean by looking at role-playing manuals. I mean actual, <laughs> you know, talking to people who, you know, who do reenactments and things like that and talking and uh, watching lots of YouTube videos about them and things like that. Right. Um, and so I have been trying to actually understand more about how these settings work mm-hmm. and everything. But you're right. Even I can see, thanks to this conversation, I've come to realize that while I am aware of a lot of the more detailed social environmental bits i'm still focusing way too much on the tactical probably more than i should but then again for a lot of my audience i can see the tactical is probably what they're really there for right yeah like in the end the audience really just wants like heroic guys like killing shit and fighting and doing doing adventurous stuff it is but it's it's the kind of thing like like in gaming you Mm -hmm. can shift from the tactical to the logistics pretty easy Right. And if you do that, it can make for a satisfying story. Because you know what? Stories had a lot of, like, the, the logistics in them. What? Was the old, uh, like, the Master and Commander books. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Because they're great for that. There were a lot of chapters where there was just really, like, the mundane shit of being, like, a, like, like a, 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 a sea captain in that era came up. Oh yeah! My, oh yeah! I, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah there, there is there is. It, it's astounding, and it took a little while for me to get used to that. Just how freaking detailed those books are about all the mundane details of their lives. Yeah, my favorite was the goat. And like it's been a while. Remind me. And like the second or the third book, where it's uh, where Aubrey's got his his uh, dispatches. Basically, mm-hmm. his memos is is what they yeah. were, and he's going through all, and it's he's he's talking to a Maturian about all the bullshit that he's got to deal with, and the one of them is, and they phrase it a little more, they phrase it a little more congenially, was mm-hmm. that one of his crew was caught fucking a goat, right. and he was trying, and he's like, I hate when they do this stuff, like what do I do, and I always remember because remember it was a work. They, 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 the, the, it, and it's considered at the time it was considered like a horrifying blasphemy, right? Which is funny when you look at like olden times, diddling a kid was nowhere as near as bad as fucking a goat, because that's exactly that, well. At least it's in the same species, right? That's ex- and that's exactly it. And I remember it because it was Marturian that came up with the uh, the solution, which was well, perhaps we could maroon him, and for completeness' sake, the goat, but on different islands. <laughs> <laughs> And they did things like that all the time. And in any setting, in like in real life, when you get that many people together, so many weird things like that are going to happen. Yeah, and yeah, good point. Nobody ever gets into that. Mm. Like, what do you do? Like, if you've got like you got all these guys that are guarding, they're bored. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I was thinking about that. What would they do to keep themselves occupied, especially when you're you're walking all day? What are you gonna do? Like stupid shit. They're gonna like make fun of guys passing by. Look at the head yeah, on that exactly. one. You know? Yeah. They're they're gonna get into stupid arguments about stuff. I say mm-hmm. King Herod the Second was the greatest. Fie! You are wrong. It was the first. And then a fight will break out, and everybody will join in because they're bored. And then you find out it's because they were arguing about some kings that died two thousand years ago. And and yeah, it'll, somebody and there's going to be a goat fucker. That's just the law of averages. That kind of <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yep. Someone's going to be looking at Bessie the ox there, going, "Hmm, look at those hips." Yeah, there's there's going to be all kinds of like. Uh, Remember, humans are, are pack animals, so there'll be one-upsmanship. <laughs> right. Pe- people will be trying to 
to to prove that they're better than the guy next to him in stupid ways because that's all you've got. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I was told by by uh by one guy who was on tour in like Afghanistan mm-hmm. that he said you get weird because your brain is always trying to maintain normality, mm-hmm. and that includes like social normality. But if it can't, it does weird things. And he said because you know it's a strict Muslim country, especially where where this guy was. Yeah, yeah. The women are covered up, but he said you'll start like judging women by their ankles. You'll be like, "Oh man, look at the ankles on her." Woo! And because that's what you do here like during the summer and everybody's out in yeah. their like booty shorts. You'd be looking and you're looking, but you're looking at ankles because your brain's like, "Oh my god, we're bored. What do I do?" Mhm. And yeah. Yep. Oh no. I agree. And and those are the... I was figuring they'd spend a lot of time singing actually. Yeah, they can and but what would they sing? Probably dirty songs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, they'd be singing. They'd be telling dirty jokes. They'd be telling stories. Farting they'd contests. Be, like, playing, joke, playing practical jokes on each other. Yeah. Doing all kinds of crazy crap. Farting contests will be a big thing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I knew a guy that for the summer he was the hero just because he could fart on command. <laughs> so guys were like, play a song! Because <laughs> there was just nothing else to do. Right. This guy wow. has a talent. He is our mm. hero. <laughs> and the other thing I was thinking is that these guys would probably go a little uh, buggy. Because imagine this, especially if you, especially after you've had, maybe you fought off one bandit raid or something like that. Knowing that there could be lurking behind any rock or tree, another guy with an arrow going to put an arrow right through you. Yep. Can you imagine walking all the time, thinking with lots of time to think, mm-hmm. and there's like, there could be a, a guy over there, there could be a goblin pop up behind that rock and like nail you right in the eyeball or something like that. I mean, that's going to get to you. Actually, you know what the worst part of that is? What? It's the thought that there could be an assassin behind every tree, but there probably isn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> Things are not going to be that exciting is what you're saying. Well, they yeah. they will, but they won't. Because what will happen is for a long time, you'll be like, nothing's going to happen. If something will happen, everybody will freak the hell out. And then for like the next week, everybody's just totally on edge and jump. And then it goes right back to nothing. And then something happens again and everybody freaks the hell out. That's what drives you buggy. I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah, because you can. It's that you're, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, because you're never totally on your guard, but you can never fully rest. So you're kind of in this weird emotional limbo for like, you know, weeks at a time. Right. And yeah, no, no, I can totally see that. And of course, if we add boogly monsters to the whole thing, so there's mo- so that occasional monsters show up or whatever, that makes things even worse. Yeah. That's why people drink. Yeah, yeah, I figured they'd be drinking a lot too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so that's where we get it. That's where we get into our daily ration of rum routine, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or at night anyway. But then again, you need your. What if people raid you at night? Yep. Which would be a perfect time to raid you. So you can't just let everyone drink either. No, and then that gets into like your your biggest command and control problem mm-hmm. is you need to maintain discipline. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to stifle morale. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And then that's how, because if the guys want to drink, and right. you want them to stay up to make sure nobody comes by and steals your shit, 
how do you balance that? Right. Yeah. Well, because I'm assuming that on a regular basis, they're going to have to camp out in the woods or out in the wilderness, right? You know, circle the wagons and uh, camp camp out there. Well, yeah, that means people have to stay on guard. Yeah. Um, And even if you're in town, well, there's the other fun thing I was thinking about is if you go to towns, so you're going to have a situation where people are, well, let's just say, yeah, you know, what if we poison these fuckers and we take all their stuff? Yeah. I mean, that's a real concern or, or just, you know, give them something that's tainted so that once they leave town, they, you know, they fall ill and then you, you go after them, right? Yeah. There's all kinds of shit that you can do with that. Well, because the thing that would mitigate that too, though, mm. is if these are established roots, yeah. word of anything at all is going to get around. That's true. That's a very true, good point. You know, the, the, yeah, that wagon group went out and, and nobody ever saw it again. So there's definitely something going on. Yeah. And. Your, your bigger problem is going to go the other way. Okay. Like, how do uh, how do the people in town feel mm-hmm. about these, like, waves of, like, rowdy, you know, ne'er-do-wells traveling with right, caravans yeah. coming in? Sure, they bring money, but then do they bring chaos as well? Right. And if that's the case, how do the towns deal with it? You could have, like, mercenary bands of police. That during the summer, during like the the summer months, the towns will hire these like extra mercenaries to act as town watch for when these caravans come and go. Right, right. They're there to deal with all the travelers and to deal with the people that are coming in and out. That makes perfect sense, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that starts a whole other cottage industry. And then you'd have to ask yourself too, depending on how things go, if you've got these like freelance police... Mm-hmm. And you've got these, like, caravan escorts that are probably doing it every year. Yep. How do they feel about each other? Do they think of each other as rivals or enemies? Or do do, yeah. do guys swap out and go back and forth between them? Probably. I mean, if there's more money in being police, you'd want to be, you know, you guys going to the police side. If there's more money in the caravan guards, that would be the more prestige position, mm-hmm. Right. But most people are fucking lazy, so they would prefer to be the police rather than the caravan guards who have to actually work their asses off. Maybe. Or like, walk them, as the case may be. The police might have to like work their asses off, too, depending on how rowdy the caravans get. This is true. That's a very good point. Um, they would, because, yeah, once the caravan guards may often outnumber the police. Yep. And so they would be very nervous about them, but... With the car- with the police and the local townspeople, they would probably still outnumber the caravan guards mostly. They might. What you'd probably see too is uh, the caravans coming into the more established towns mm-hmm. would probably have like areas that they're limited to. Right. Yeah. Like like a truck stop because you got to remember it's not just um, like a command and control thing keeping the peace. Mm-hmm. There's logistics concerns because if you're using ox. Ox eat a lot. Yeah, yeah. And you need to supply them. And then when they eat a lot, they're going to poop a lot. Mm-hmm. And what happens with that? Like, what are the roads going to look like if you've got all these, like, traveling caravans? This, this is why high boots were invented. Um, yeah, good point. If, good point. If you've got the caravans coming into town for command and control of the town, the authorities are probably going to want to keep them. There'll be, like, areas set aside for them. Mm, but mm, makes sense. But what happens there when the waste starts building up there? Is there a way of dealing with it? 
I would presume if these towns have farms around them, they just use the waste as manure, right? They could, but again, you have to remember, somebody's going to have to gather that up. The, but that's what the piss boy is for, sir. Yeah, but it's not just going to be a piss boy. It's going to be like you know, the, the poop brigade. You're going to have like... And that'll be a whole separate industry just based around ox poop. Yeah, yeah, it would. The, yeah, you, that's that's a good point. You could have the Guild of Broom and Shovel who who like have clamped down on the uh, the, the the manure trade. Right. And yeah. And maybe in some remote rocky areas they're corrupt and they're like the mob. You want your fertilizer, you gotta deal with me, you know. <laughs> <coughs> which which You are getting way into this. Okay, yeah, well, sure. No, I used to run really good AD and D campaigns back in the day. That's I, what this I bet is. You did. <laughs> I bet you did, yeah. Really, no, and this is this is you showing off how detailed you thought about these settings. Wow. Re- really strange ones as far as a lot of people were concerned, but you know. Well, when you're thinking about the the piss mafia, yeah, I think you're getting into some pretty strange shit, man. Well, you know who else did thought about a lot of this? Who? Terry Pratchett. Yeah, I think he did. That's true. Because if you remember, when you talk about the the piss mafia, that's literally a thing in Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. Is it? I forget the guy's name, but if you remember, it was the dude that he got the idea that he basically put buckets on the corners. Because... It's it's like a, a a mid medieval level setting, so guys would just take a whiz wherever. Mm-hmm. Well, they take a whiz in the buckets, and his guys would collect them, and then the city thought that was great because it's more sanitary and less disgusting. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, urine was used for stuff. It was used for making leather, and it, it potassium in it yes. was extracted. And this guy became like a bajillionaire from collecting all the all the whiz and taking it to his his plant, where he'd like render it into different chemicals and sell it to different people in the city. Jesus. As I, okay, yeah, yeah, I can totally see it. Yeah, as, as I recall, his said his uh, slogan in the one book was "taking the piss for five years." So. <laughs> And that's part of oh, it. Oh, Pratchett, you were such a genius. Yeah. You really were. My, my favorite part of that, too, is remember he had the Seamstresses Guild, mm-hmm. which was like the Hooker's Union. I guess what I was going to say. It's the Hooker's Union, yeah. yeah. Except for the one, I can't remember her name, that was an actual Seamstress who got rich because they just, she joined up not knowing what it was, and then everybody else, when somebody would come up with a legitimate tailoring problem, would just send them to her. <laughs> And she got rich from that, too. But it makes perfect sense if you think about a setting like that. Things like that would happen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely they would. Mm. No question on that. Wow. That's a very good point. Mm. And it's a weird one. Like I'm gonna, I, you're, you've given me definitely a lot to think about. Yeah, it's very weird, but that's definitely a lot to think about. Yeah. Because don't forget, too, if somebody's oh. collecting all that ox poop. That, yeah. that could be something else that gets transported. So now I need a poop caravan. And and it brings up that idea, if I'm a guard, what do I want to guard? Uh, do, do I want to take the uh, poop caravan thing? Or do I want to go with the rich merchant and his 15 wives? Like, which one is going to be the better job? <laughs> I'm going with the rich merchant. Um, but but then again, you have to put up with a lot of shit either way. Mm. So, But it's... it's Thank you. Thank you very much. Good night, folks. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, but okay, uh, but on, the thing is about the poop on the on the road and such. I can see the animals dealing with it. I can see the local farmers gathering it because, again, as you said, they they could probably use it for manure and sell it and such. Um, I could see 
it especially if there's it on the frequently traveled roads, I can see it be definitely being a problem. You got a good point there. Mm. Um, maybe not so much on the less traveled roads because again, it would the nature would have a, a way to deal with it, right? Yeah, but there's there's the less tra- each one each one is going to have its own weird hazard. That's true. Because on the more traveled routes, if somebody's gathering it, that's a hazard. Because I got to basically go out in the traffic now to scrape up the poop. Yeah, but if there's only one guy or thing coming like every hour or two, it's not really a big problem. There might, but if you've got the settlements that close together, again, it might be constant. There could be quite a few. Yeah. That's true. And in the remote areas, one of the weird things that that it, it kind of ties in with the idea that dogs eat their own poop. Right, yeah. Do you know why? Oh, they're doing it to uh, maintain... Actually, they love to eat, sometimes eat their own poop or other dogs' poop. They're doing it to maintain their microbiome. That's one reason. And there's another evolutionary reason why they do it. For cleanliness? Not exactly. What it is, is it's the idea that they think part of it happens because if a dog is pooping, mm-hmm. that tells other animals that there's a dog in the area. Right. If you're a big animal that likes to eat dogs, that's like saying, hey, guess what? So in the road area, if you've got like a lot of ox poop gathering, that's going to tell like the local hippogriff, hey, there's a lot of oxes here. And now you've generated your own your own hazard. And that would be one of the reasons why in a proper kingdom, you would have maintenance mm-hmm. crews that would take that stuff away because that's a sign to uh, to the non-intelligent, terrifying animals. Mm-hmm. that there's potential food here yeah i was just thinking that that it would be a great way to attract um animals mm-hmm. and which is the last thing you want you know especially when you've got your caravans and people going through yep. yeah plus the idea too that it 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 can also attract scavengers yeah yeah and then that becomes definitely that becomes a hazard because if the rats are showing up because of all the poop they mm-hmm. can get into the wagons and stuff as they're going by, especially if they're hauling food, because they're not yeah. traveling that... A, a rat can outrun a man for a very short distance. Right, yeah. So we could easily manage to get onto that wagon. Yeah. So that could be what their other guards' other jobs is basically to keep the rats away from the wagons. Yeah, and that's that was one of the things when we started playing the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game, mm-hmm. uh, because... You don't get to pick your occupation when you start your role. Rat catcher's one of them. And we, when we first saw that, because we were really young, mm-hmm. we're like, what the hell is a rat catcher? And we looked at, oh, that was actually a thing. And that was kind of important. Oh, okay. Yes, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, wow. I hadn't given that serious thought. But yes, that's definitely true. Yeah, the rats, the other small animals like that would definitely be an issue that you'd want to keep, uh, you'd have to deal with. <laughs> And getting rid of you're you're getting an awful lot of mileage at Roxpoo. You really are. Well, I'm pretty impressed. Well, it is, and and, and it's funny because when you when you think about the rat catcher, I can picture like a character. He's like this ultimate badass mercenary who travels in his like special custom like wagon. He's the ratter, and he's just the best rat exterminator ever. And he's this like big grizzled old guy with like a scar over one eye, and he's missing teeth, and he's always like loaded with a billion throwing knives because that's how he like takes out the rats and shit. Right. That's pretty cool. And then Okay, yeah, he's, yeah. He's like the badassest badass and the whole story is the rat catcher. And then cuz if it's a fantasy setting, you can say, "Yeah, well, you just see the little ones. You haven't seen the 5-foot long ones I got to deal with." Yeah. Right. 
Now we're into Goblin Slayer territory. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Except it's rats. Big rats. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, well, yeah, that's that's definitely an issue. Okay. So let's see, you had your three errors. So there was logistics, command and control, and tactical. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's swing back around to tactical for a little bit again. Okay, so so is the idea that I've got of them walking along next to the wagons and that probably does that make tactical sense? Like, is that a re- is that a reasonable way to set it up? Yeah, if they're using ox. Yes, I know if they're horses, that wouldn't be because be, they'd be too fast. <laughs> that'd be but. Damn hard on the infantry is what that would be. <laughs> exactly, but I was assuming that that would that that probably made sense. The only issue, like I said, I could see weight being an issue for weapons and such. Yeah. But again, you could probably clip them onto the wagons or things like that if you had the ability to anyway. Um, and then what could they do, though? Like when, let's say, okay, so let's say a group of bandits attack. Right. Okay. What from a tactical perspective would be the best way for them to deal with it? Just basically all gather up and like, okay, let's let's just clump up and fight. Um is, is just everyone rush to that area and start fighting, which I guess makes sense, but would that be the best way to deal with it usually? Yeah, you got to remember if you're doing like caravans, mm-hmm. they're not going to fight. They're only going to fight long enough to get away. Well, I'm assuming that any bandit group that's doing a raid worth their assault would probably block the road. Yeah, they would. And what you'd also see sometimes with a, uh, a more well-stocked caravan... Mm-hmm. They would have like a like a ballast wagon mm-hmm. that it's full of stuff, but it's the low end stuff, and they might abandon that to take off because the bandits aren't going to want to fight either. Right? Like nobody, nobody in this situation is looking for a fight; they're hoping for the exact opposite. Well, I was thinking that this was my thinking. Okay, that if you got a if you got a caravan and you got a group, if a group of bandits show up at the front of the caravan. That means that usually they've got another group that's going in and stealing the rear couple wagons. <laughs> they they will if there's enough of them. Yeah, if they if they if they have enough to pull it off. If they show up at the rear of the caravan, they're probably again trying to distract the guards and they're playing to steal the front couple wagons. And if they attack the middle of the caravan, that means they probably intend to kill the guards and take the caravan. Um, it depends because okay, there's there's the bandits are a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got like a busy area, right? There may be bandits, but they'll take a different approach. Okay. Like the most likely kind on, on established trails like this, the most likely kind of banditry you're going to run into is the impromptu toll booth kind of thing. Oh, give us some money, uh, or we won't let you pass, or something like that. Yeah, and and if it's really busy, they're not going to get away with that because all the caravans are just going to get together and stop the shit out of them. Right. Like, they're going to be more a remote thing. You might see the idea of uh, of travel insurance. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're heading through this area. That's where the Bucktooth boys, wait, like, do their dirty trade. But for five gold, I'm pretty sure nothing bad will happen to your caravan. You'd see a lot of that. Oh, yeah, you would. And, and in fact, in, in actual China, let me put a little side note there. What the escort groups would do, okay, is they would send people on ahead to basically bribe the local bandits to leave the caravan alone. Yep. Most of the time, that's what they did. And then they would have banners that they would carry. And the ba- purpose of the banner was to actually show, hey, we're this group that paid you the money, so don't, bother, so don't raid us. That's actually what usually they did in real life. <laughs> yeah, and that's and again because nobody's looking for a fight. 
Yeah. And it's it's when you're when you're running the caravan, extra guards cost money. Mm-hmm. So you want to get away with as little as possible. Right, yeah. And again, you're not jet likely to have an army unless if you've got no, you wouldn't. if you've got cargo that's more valuable dead, mm-hmm. you would. So if it, it's a traveling dignitary, mm-hmm. would have an armed guard because if they get yeah. killed off, that 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 would be the objective. Like that's somebody who's going to come after it to fight. But mm-hmm. yeah, most bandits are just guys looking for a couple bucks. Yeah, so they're not going to do anything too serious. They they'd be better off in most cases just going to the post towns and trying to uh, cheat the uh, cheat or rob the uh, caravan guards or the other people working on the caravan. Yeah, che- cheating people is more likely. That mm. you get like a way station that's actually run by a criminal family and they rip you off kind of thing. Right, yeah, last, makes sense. Last one for 20 miles. Something horrible yeah. happened to the one that was two miles up. Weird fire, we don't know, but whatever. You know, and it, it, it ha- you might even have like a, a guild of bandits mm-hmm. that the most powerful group of bandits said, you know, we could just rob these other assholes and not have to do anything really. And then... There's one group of bandits that kind of regulates all the other bandits in the area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Because what you're talking about, like the actual ambush, again, that's only going to really happen if it's a particularly prized cargo, if they're looking to damage it, or if you're in a remote area with a surprisingly organized and large group of bandits. Yes. Like a group of bandits. A group of bandits could be like five guys. That's true. Okay, good point. Could be one. Um, all... Highwaymen were like one guy. Yeah, but they usually didn't. Like, that. that's fine against, like, an unarmed couple wagons. But if you've got, like, 20 wagons and, like, I don't know, maybe about uh, a dozen, like, mercenaries walking, guards working alongside them, one or one to five bandits is not going to be enough to be a real threat. Yeah, and that's, and that's why in, like, the busy areas, you'll see the crime take other forms. Even then, too, you gotta think it's not just gonna be the caravans using these routes. Like, you'll have, like, you know, rich guys on vacation and stuff. So you could still have highwaymen. They're just gonna be really picky about their targets. That's true. Yeah, they would leave the caravans alone because too much trouble. Yeah, there could even be targets of opportunity that what happens is our caravans at this way station, but they heard about, you know, like like rich uncle Bob is is coming through and his thing and a couple of the guys in your group say, "You know, if we just fuck off really quick in the middle of the night, we can ambush him, rob uncle Bob and then sneak back and nobody'll be any the wiser." Mhm. Very true. So, that, yeah, that might be a bit of an issue as well. Mm. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that, those are all, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely something to think about. Wow. And then, huh. and then that depends on your screening process because this is, again, more of that command and control thing. How am I getting the people who are guards? Like if there's a, a, a guild of, of cart guard in, incorporated or, or however that would work. Mm-hmm. You might have rigorous screening that happen. You might have like one of the bands of crooks do this and they screen the guards rigorously because they're making money actually like selling certificates of this guy is awesome guarding this. And then it lets the <laughs> and then it lets them know who all the dickweeds ended up on. So that's the, the caravan you want to attack. Right, right. Okay. So and but the that's a pretty twisted way to do it. Okay, sure. Yeah, and and, and it again it's it depends how long you you've had this setup going and 
and where you want to take it. There's all kinds of craziness that nobody ever writes about that you could have happening. Like I said, what I was trying to do was, is this is an area that's just starting to bloom like this, right? right. So it's early days in this in this region. And so that's why we don't have much in the way of actual official, like there's not, you know, any kind of army patrols going along here or anything like that because they don't give a crap, right? right? It's basically down to just whatever the local merchants are willing to pay or the local townships, etc. And so... You're just get you're just starting to get um, the people on the roads that you're talking about. You're just starting to get the the gills, the 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 crime, the shenanigans, all that stuff is just starting to happen. Yes, for the most part. So that place should be bug fucking insane because everybody's trying to sneak in and grab their piece of the pie early. Yeah, that's pretty much how I saw it. That's mm-hmm. why I set it up that way. Yeah. So I was thinking that would be the best way to do it. Is is you know, new new opportunity, new land, which means there's a kind of a kind of rush going on. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Buck Fucking Saint's probably a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. kind of going back to like your your discussion of like an ambush. Mm-hmm. In real life, if you're doing some kind of convoy, what you typically do is you'll have like an advance guard, mm-hmm. and then you've got the the main convoy. And usually within striking distance behind that, you would have an extra, like, combat troop ready. Okay. So that, like, what ends up happening, say, in real life is the advanced guys are basically, they're just there to see if there's any obvious traps or if the the route's been damaged or that. Right, yeah, makes sense. The main body is where you've got, and it's all interdispersed with what you're transporting and who's protecting it. Yep, makes sense. And then you've always got a bunch of guys that are just a few minutes behind that so that if the main body gets attacked, this extra group of reinforcements scoots up and, like, does all the fighting. Okay, yeah, I hadn't thought about the extra group behind. That's an interesting one. Yeah, that, for, for like, what you're doing, it, only the, mm-hmm. the really big caravans would probably have it divvied up that way. Probably, yeah. And if, if it's in a busy area, they'd d- probably dispense with the, the forward and rear guard because it wouldn't be as necessary or useful. Right, because you'd be able to work with the people that are passing you all basically on the road. You'd get some information from them. Yeah, and, and there's the idea if it's busy, my rear guard might have to fight through like a traffic jam to get to us. If it's really busy, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So it's not it's it's as you get to like the the more remote areas, you'd want that kind of thing because you want a little extra oomph for when you need it, and you want a little advance warning, and you're not going to be getting that from the ecosystem that's operating in the area. Mm. Makes sense. Mm. Makes perfect sense. So that so that would be something. Yeah, for the more remote areas. Okay, makes total sense. Yeah, I can see that. Because that that the remote areas would probably work like if you watch how uh, caravans work in like the old west. Mm-hmm. That and depending how remote it is, like in the old west, they'd hire like local scouts. Right. So from like whatever like bands of First Nations that were in the area, they would hire them because they know the land. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, you'd probably hire each valley or each region you go to, you'd probably hire locals to be your scouts. Yeah, because they know what's going on. They they mm-hmm. they know the politics of the area. They know all the warning signs and stuff. Right, yeah, makes sense. Huh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really considered that one. Mm-hmm. But wow, you've given me a lot to think about. Thanks, Don. Hmm. Like I said, I used to run really good AD&D games. I apparently <laughs> did. Yeah, I mean, you 
you you do realize that there's actually money in running D and D these days. You can actually be a paid GM. That is so weird. It's an actual job. <laughs> that is so weird. What? It, no, it is, but it's totally true. Actually, in Toronto, I know that they have a. There's a couple of oh, what's it called? I was just told about this not long ago, but there's a couple of these. Uh, you know, they're not exactly game cafes, but they're kind of like that. Right. And there's even a couple larger game stores now. That what they've done is they're like half to a quarter store, and then the rest of it is play area, like tables and things like that. And they'll even provide. GM, basically hired GMs. Hmm. Like if you want to play a game, they'll be like, okay, well, we can, you know, we you make an appointment and you come, you'll show up with your friends and then there's, you know, Bob the GM and he uh, either helps you make characters or helps you customize some pre-made characters and then you, you're off and running and he'll run you through, you know, usually the GMs I've heard have a couple different modules that they're all kind of experts at mm-hmm. and then they'll run those, you'll, you'll basically run, because they usually figure people aren't looking for a land campaign. They're looking for at most a few sessions, right? Yeah. So they so they show up and yeah, you they run you through their favorite modules and that's kind of it. And they know all the ins and outs of those modules, so they're you know they're they're giving you a good experience, a, a fun experience, like funny voices, all that kinds of stuff. Yeah, we we got that in Windsor. There's a couple of stores right by my house, but it's it's the store staff that does that. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're often on staff or something like that. But yeah, there are there are definitely paid GMs. Some of them can make quite a bit of money. Apparently, I've heard. Huh. Yeah, because there's um, there's one like about hmm? forty meters from my house. Maybe you should inquire. Because they they actually have a delicatessen in there too. You go into the delicatessen, I assume, to eat. <laughs> no, I go there to buy my like, uh, paints and stuff for my gaming miniatures. Ah, okay. But it's makes sense. It's it's sense. it's a big. I don't know if you remember where the party store used to be. It's been a long okay. time, sir. Sorry. Yeah, it used to be like a party store, so it's big, and they have like a counter, and they sell games and supplies, mm-hmm. and then half of this place is all tables and chairs, and then in that section, yeah, there's a delicatessen that, if you look up the reviews online, a lot of people say the sandwiches are really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, we used to have a gaming room down, it was called the Cardboard Cafe, it was downtown, mm-hmm. and actually, they had pretty good food. Yeah, I was actually surprised, they had really good milkshakes, actually. Wow. They made they made them with like real you know real ice cream and everything and they they really old school milkshake really good great selection of games but the only it just closed down about like six six months ago or so right and it was basically because the owners got uh, for whatever reason they got tired of running it it wasn't that it wasn't making money they just kind of had enough right and no one wanted to buy it I heard so they basically just said sorry we're just gonna close up shop yeah um so huh. I think it was a family business or something yeah. Uh, so, okay, just a few final th- questions then. <laughs> so, also, from the uh, command and control perspective, let's go through your different things. We've covered logistics and we covered mm-hmm. tactics, but from a command and control perspective, I'm assuming a troop of caravan guards, like you would probably have, obviously, there'd be a, a CO, a commanding officer, and there's probably, he had probably has at least one lieutenant that's working with him to help keep things under control. Right. Um. And there's probably actually going... So I'm assuming that the the commander would probably ride on one of the wagons, probably probably towards the front or whoever's, you know, whoever's in charge there, or somewhere they can keep an eye on things. And then they'd have the second in command would be mobile, would be going around and keeping an eye on, you know, things in general, right? That, that would make the most sense. Kind of. There's different ways to do it because th- it depends on the size of, like, your caravan. Right. If you've got a relatively small one... 
because a, a, a caravan is going to be organized by probably a merchant or like a rich guy or something. Mm-hmm. And if they're if they've got like say ten guards or less, right? Yeah. Then the guy fronting the bill is probably going to want to be the commander of it. I could see that. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, because you'd you'd be hiring freebooters essentially for it. Right. Um, if you're getting much bigger than that, or for a large caravan, you're going to mm-hmm. have for the guards. They're going to be more paramilitary, and you're going to have commanders of the guard. Okay. And what might end up happening is if it's a big merchant caravan, say twenty wagons. Right. And you've hired like a troop of like thirty guys. There'll be a, a commander for them, and. There could be friction between the, the, the guy paying the bill and the guy leading the troops about who's actually in charge. I can totally see that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I've, I've heard of things like that happening in real life. Yeah, I bet you have. Yeah. That, that yeah, you'll you'll get, like, a caravan escort, and they're escorting, like, um, like a local dignitary or something. Mm-hmm. And then that guy wants to be in charge, but military procedure is whoever the commander of the armed troops is, is the guy in charge of the caravan. Yes, well, that, which makes the most sense, right? Yeah, and you see that in, like, movies all the time with, like, the tough guy cop or adventurer. When mm-hmm. the shooting starts and I tell you to duck, you duck, you understand that. It's that same idea, right? Yeah, yeah, makes sense, <clears throat> makes sense. That that's, hmm. that's the, the combat guy. And then that's a whole other infrastructure, too, because you depending on how big the caravan is and where you're going, you're going to need dissemination of information. Mm-hmm. The supreme commander is probably somewhere in the main body. Oh, interesting. They wouldn't be at the front then. Oh, hell no, because the front and the back guys are are because that goes to like your ambush situation in real life. I'm gonna wipe out the vehicles at the front and the back because now the guys in the middle can't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. So yeah. the front and the back guys are usually disposable. Mm-hmm. Your two IC might end up in the front. Right. Or he can like see what's going on because. You're going to set your force up. You want them, especially in like a medieval setting where you don't have radios or anything. Mm-hmm. And it can take a minute for information to go. You want the person in, on scene to be experienced. Right. So you'd probably have like a lieutenant running the, the, the scout. And you'd probably have another one in the back. And they would get a, a briefing. What happens if this? What happens if that? So that they can make that decision when shit goes down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But your ultimate commander is mostly in a logistics position. He's not necessarily barking out the orders when the fighting starts because he might not be in it. But he's the guy that's coming up with the plan and passing it on. Right. So that he's the guy that'll sit down and go, if our scouts come under attack, they should blah, blah, blah. And then he would explain that to the guy in charge of the scouting detachment kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, they they would obviously have to have plans for what they would do in different contingencies in different situations. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. And interesting. And the one thing that you never, ever, 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 ever see in any book or movie that would be a big deal. Mm-hmm. They would have rendezvous points plotted out ahead of time. Oh, that's true. And in case they need to separate. Yep. And they would actually en route. They might delineate them as you're going on Mm -hmm. so it's possible if you've got like a smaller caravan the commander might be if they're on oxes commander might have like a horse or a faster animal right and he might be running back and forth between the wagons and such 
-hmm. And he might do stuff that on the way you see a cave and he might tell everybody if something happens, this is our next RV point. Right. Yeah. So that everybody remembers that if shit goes down and the caravan gets broken up, everybody's going to move to the last designated RV point on the march. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and if they've got good maps and information, they would try to plot things like that out ahead of time. Right. Yeah. If we're under attack. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Each day, each day, I was going to say they'd probably before they set out each day, if they had a decent map, they'd basically plan that out at the at the beginning of the day. Yeah. Saying, okay. These are these are our rendezvous points if if we run into trouble. Yeah, and and what you'd also see too, especially in a large caravan, when they stop for the night and set up camp, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the lieutenants would come back and and give the report to the commander. Mm-hmm. And then the commander would plot out, has the plan changed? What's the next part of our thing? Like there would be, there would be meetings at night between like all the, the higher ups. Mm-hmm. And then like the guy front in the bill would probably want to be involved in that and have input. And depending on how smart and or irritating that person is, that could be like a sense, like, like create a, a sense of tension and drama at those mm-hmm. meetings. We can't go this way. We have to, if we take the way you want, that's an extra three days and my, exactly. my fugi plants will spoil and we can't, bl- but if we go this way, the Yorks will eat our tires and blah, blah, blah. Yep. Oh no, I can totally see that. Yeah. No, that's exactly what would probably happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's a good source of drama. Exactly. As you say. Hmm. And, and there could be different signaling methods. Cause again, um, flags and banners are used. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, a, a traveling caravan. Yeah. Realistically would have all kinds of shit hanging off the side. Cause like you were saying, it's it's the markers for the guys we've bribed, and there would be certain things that you would mark out just mm-hmm. in case. Like if you had like a, like a, like an apothecary wagon, that might have a special right. flag, so that when guys are injured, if there is a fight or an accident, they know where to go. Mm-hmm. Right, that makes sense. That's another thing that you would have plans for: is what happens if there's an accident. Mm-hmm. You could use um, like if you've got any kind of chemistry you could use like smoke for markers yeah yeah sounds are big like people didn't bring musicians to battle just because you know they wanted a kick-ass soundtrack that was how you sent signals over great distances yeah yeah exactly so if you do have a scouting group and they're a few miles ahead they might have like a bugler or a piper with them mm-hmm. and then that would be how they're sending signals back yeah exactly so that's the first person who gets shot. <laughs> yeah. And another thing tying into that who'd be the second person that gets shot is you'd have designated runners. Yeah. So in, if you have an advanced group, somebody in that group would be the guy, if shit goes down, your only job is to run back and tell everybody else. Mm-hmm. That is exactly. That is all you do. And then that person, <clears throat> that person, would, and then that goes to your equipment thing, mm-hmm. that different people would be equipped and armed differently. Mm-hmm. So the runner might not have any armor at all. Yeah, they probably wouldn't because they need to be light and fast. Yeah, the advanced group might have, say, like just leather armor because their job is to die really loud so the guys behind them know something happened. The main body might be where all the heavy armored troops are, and if you had cavalry, they'd probably be there. Mm-hmm. Or in the rear guard, but the rear guard might have lighter equipment. They might have lighter armor, but you'd give them like longer range equipment, like heavy crossbows. Mm-hmm. So that they could move quicker to get into battle and they'd have the ranged equipment that they'd need in order to attack. Right. And then again, you might not use a lot of like long range equipment because if it's a busy area, 
mm-hmm. you might hit somebody like a bystander. They might not care. They they might not. But again, there might be, and there might be rules about that. And there might be like if there's road warrants, they might enforce no crossbows in this zone. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there might it, it might even be a weird thing that that's a bandit thing. Right. That when the bandits show up at your camp and offer you protection through their part of town, they go through your shit and they confiscate all like your deadliest weapons because they don't want you using them on them if they should decide that they're going to backstab you. Yeah, well, that's exactly why you don't give up your deadliest weapons. Or you, or you hide them. Right, that's true. Because in an established area, if you've got like a, like a local yunta or a local like crime boss, they might be powerful enough they can make you do shit like that. We're, that's true we're not you might not have a hmm. yeah or they might even just be tricky that if you're coming through like say an abandoned area they've developed this entrance into this this pass is candling ground and they've set up a kill zone and everybody knows it so even if you're much more better armed than them when the boiling oil falls off the cliff on your 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 oxen it's just not worth the cost no no it's not exactly so the inclination would just be, yeah, just, yeah, okay, just pay them off. Yeah. <laughs> and just pay them off and just give them their price and get through safely. Yeah, and what the smartest bandits will do is that when you get to the entrance to their territory, they'll make you pay a fee and confiscate all your crossbows. And then we get to the edge of their territory, they'll sell you your own crossbows back. <laughs> just to rub it in. <laughs> that actually makes perfect sense, Yeah. <laughs> They won't they they won't ambush you or anything. They'll just sell you your crossbows back. So they they've charged you double. Yep. Oh, that's pretty funny actually. And then you could even have if it's a, a powerful enough group of bandits that controls a big enough area, there might be mm-hmm. rival bandits, little small groups in their own territory that will do shit like smuggle you crossbows once you get past their checkpoint. Wow. Okay. <laughs> a, a bandit checkpoint could be like a town unto itself, and it's like a little carnival scene, and they have like bars and entertainers and all kinds of like, like drug dealers and shit, because they know you're gonna have to stop here anyway. So other people move in, and again, like it's mm-hmm. it's best to think of things like settings like this as an ecology. Yeah, I see your point. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, that like like a bandit outpost isn't a. Th- thing it's not an event that happens in 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 a game it typically is because it'll be an encounter right yeah but if these things are fixed then a whole other world springs up around them it just just automatically yeah if you're if you understand how the world works and how these things happen it makes perfect sense yeah Mm -hmm. that's true wow no this actually this leads to an interesting thing though when you were writing a story or you could be playing a game too but since i'm a writer we'll go from that angle um it's very very easy to just basically become obsessed with world building and building your ecology and never actually write your story yeah but this is one of the great dangers of being a world builder is that yeah you want to create an interesting setting but at the same time if you spend too, if it gets too much, it just becomes a way for you to procrastinate and not actually write your story. Or you write a, a waste of time. Or you write a game. Split the difference. <laughs> well, you can split the difference. Yeah, that's true. But I can see, yeah, that, but that's definitely a, a danger, especially for fantasy writers, is they just become so obsessed with their setting. And the truth is, in the end, though, this is the other problem. Most audiences don't really give a shit about your setting. Like they give a shit in the sense that it's entertaining or interesting. 
Mm-hmm. But they don't give a shit about all the boring details for the most part. If the details aren't interesting or amusing or connected some way, like Pratchett does, for example, the audience doesn't really want to hear about them. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a value in thinking it out in two ways. Mm-hmm. Because one is you'll come up with ideas for stuff that you can make interesting and your audience will be like, oh man, that's awesome. I never thought of that. Like like the ratter. Mm. No, yeah, that's true. Nobody thinks that. And two, I think if you've got a really well thought out world, the audience does appreciate it, but they don't know they are because it becomes internally consistent. Mm, true. And I think part of it is what you can do to mitigate the problem, like you say, that you get carried away at the world building. Mm-hmm. is you can always just keep something in your back pocket. That's true. I want to I want to write a story about this kind of thing. I think the hell out of that. There's all these other collateral things that came up because of that. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sit down and plot that out now, but that gives me something I can hang on to depending on if I want to do another story that goes somewhere else. Right. Or, or if I'm just looking for a new take, I want to revisit this setting with a slightly new thing i've got something else that i can get to and build on because it's you're never done right yeah it's true it's the thing even from this talk you can see how if one of us mentions one thing Mm -hmm. five other things come off of that that's true it's just it's a constantly expanding situation yeah that's very true and the trick is not to Mm -hmm. obsess or worry about that but just to to write it as long as you can and just let it happen that's a very organic approach to it. Yeah, because that's that's kind of what you want. Because that's again, it, that's what makes your world feel alive. Mm-hmm. Th- mm-hmm. That it it's. I've always said that that like a good movie, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like that whole universe just exists in the one space of this one movie, and then when it's done, all these characters disappear. Right. If you've done a good job, you can you kind of get the feeling that they're still. And I think this is why so many people get into like writing fan fiction or love like sequels or different takes. And even if they don't, people keep publishing like y'all and here's the story of the ice cream maker guy that was running through the halls of Bespin because a good setting and good characters that they feel real that your brain thinks, well, what else are they doing? Like this is just Mm -hmm. a small part of their world. And then if you've already got some of those details, if you want to go somewhere like that, like I say, you keep it in your back pocket until you need it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think that's probably, yeah, you're, that's the right way to go. Do some preparation, but not too much. And then also for writing, I'd say, and for GMing as well, I would say use those stuff you figured out, but at a certain point, just start writing and other stuff will pop up as you write. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff will happen naturally as you write. Anyway, you'll come up with more ideas. So just get the basics of what you need, then start writing. And then you can always add stuff in revisions or change stuff as you go or whatever. Yeah. There's a certain point where it becomes just do it, just write and get it out. And it'll all happen organically if you've done it right. And your brain's working that way anyway. Yeah, I think when you mentioned gaming too, uh, mm-hmm. gaming's a good example because if you're if you're game mastering and you've come up with a detailed world, mm-hmm. the trick is you want to stop where a writer begins. Oh, interesting. Why do you say that? Oh, because well, the writer's the one that's going to do the specific story and come up with the characters mm-hmm. and, and the plot. And that's kind of what you want your players in a game to do. Mm-hmm. 
And that's, that's where I think the, the dichotomy and the usefulness of doing both to help the other comes in. Mm-hmm. Because in a game, you just want to set things up and then let the players do what they're going to do. Right. And that gives you that gives you good practice about knowing where to end it. Because if you get too involved in building the world, then the world is just going to run over the players. Right. The, the, the best example is we've probably all played with somebody who's running and they have an NPC shows up. And the NPC is ultimately the hero. Mm-hmm. Be- yeah. Because they're enamored with their own character, and you don't want to do that. That's the point where they should have stopped and written a story. Yeah, very true. Yeah, because the story, the setting exists to support the characters' stories, not the not to control them or manipulate them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, yeah, there's always GMs who love their setting so much, and the characters are really just going through a guided tour of their setting. Yeah. Although you could make an argument that that happens with some fantasy novels as well. Um, maybe ones by certain uh, old professors as well, uh, where you know every blade of grass and you know every mountain <laughs> and you know uh, the echo of every valley um, as you as they head towards Mount Doom or whatever it's called. Right. I still love uh, love the story of him reading, uh, reading his stuff. It was uh, Lord of the Rings, I think it was. He was reading to his friends. Mm-hmm. And one of his friends at one point just said, not another fucking elf. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that story. Oh, no, okay, yeah. I totally believe it. But that goes with the idea, too. Now, there's a gaming example as well. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, guy who did Empire of the Petal Throne. Right. That him and Tolkien. Oh, I can't remember his name. It's going to bug me. Professor M.A.R. Barker, wasn't it? Or something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. That Again, they were both professors. Like... Like, uh, uh, Tolkien was like a language professor, if I remember. Language and medieval mythology or literature, something like that. Yeah, yeah. and that's why he actually planned out all the languages. And the guy who did, uh, Empire of the Petal Throne does the same thing with, like, their languages and history and culture. Mm-hmm. And it's because that's their interest, that's their, their skill set. It makes for interesting stuff, but yeah, it can definitely be a slog at times. Mm-hmm. But like, have you actually read that game, Empire of the Petal Throne? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh hell yeah. Okay. It it's it's a it's a it's a trippy kind of kind of experience. I bet it is. I always assumed because I never read it. I always assumed it would be something like Talislantia. Uh Which being in the sense that for those who don't know, Talislantia is the the famous game that they create, fantasy game, where there are like 200 different races and they're all basically just variants of humans and different human animal things and such. And it's just this incredibly detailed world. Like every single corner or blade of grass of Talislantia is documented somewhere in one of their books. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it, it's like in that respect, the, the flavor is different. Mm-hmm. It has a very kind of like Incan Empire, Aztec Empire kind of feel. Oh, that could be cool. And the setting is very sinister. Very sinister? Why so? Um, it, It's not like a, like a D&D death around every corner. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a world where life doesn't necessarily have intrinsic value. And he said, "Okay, it, it's really interesting. It's it's again like Tolkien was before the movies. It's one of those things that 
not a lot of people were real into it, but the ones that were were crazy into it because if you can get past the the obstacles to to getting into these the like like the Lord of the Rings and and uh, and Empire of the Petal Throne kind of stuff, it's very rewarding because mm-hmm. there's so much there. Huh, but yeah, okay. Empire of the Petal Throne because it's based on like these Aztec Incan kind of things. Mm-hmm. People are more of a commodity. Okay. And there's a big deal. The The idea of the game, it's set up so that your character is a barbarian. Your character is somebody who enters the world from outside of the main biggest kingdom. Mm-hmm. And you're like the lowest of the low. And one of the running things, it works in, in a lot like the Roman Empire in respect that the more you adapt to the dominant culture and the more you do things that they consider of value, the more your status goes up. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this feeling of increasing your, you want to increase your character's standing in society. So that way he's not just like sold off or backhandedly murdered in the streets and nobody cares. Oh, great. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Like I say, it's, it's, it's not exactly bleak, but it's sinister. There's a lot of like, like different, mm-hmm. different groups and different questionable behaviors and that. And it, it is, it's, 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 again, it's very interesting. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like it. And disturbingly huh. well thought out. Again, like Tolkien stuff. If you get into Tolkien stuff, that he thought, like, yeah, that every every blade of grass kind of kind of thing. Wow. And Barker actually ran this, and other people ran this as well. It's still running. It's still running. It's still running. The, I I didn't get it when it first came out because it had a really short print run. Okay. And it was hard to find, and and this was like um, the late seventies. Mm-hmm. So I was like eight and didn't have a lot of resources I could bring to bear. Yes, that's true. But I got one of those uh, one of those bundles of holding things that was like the basic book and a bunch of extra stuff. And I was like, I am very curious, so I will pick this up. And I mm-hmm. and I did. And yeah, like I say, it's it's very it's very interesting. I believe it, but he's not still alive, is he? I think he is. I think like I, I think his it because stuff is still coming out for it slowly weird but is he writing it i think he is i think again because um i'd seen pictures within the last couple years that he basically has a gaming room in his house dedicated to it and they have like the city built and he has got to be thousands of miniatures because he did plot out at one point like everybody who lives in this main damn city uh no you're wrong Professor M. A. R. Barker, uh-huh. who we're we're talking about, passed away March sixteenth, twenty twelve. Okay. He did actually. He was a professor of Urdu and South Asian studies. Okay. Who created one of the first role playing games? And I thought I thought it used D and D. Does it have its own system? No, it's it's actually it's one of the first games that was very different. It uses mostly percentiles. Oh really? Okay, so I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, I always interpret it as a D and D setting. Maybe that's some people used it as such or something. I don't know. Well, I, okay, weird. I think it was because D and D came. I think Empire of the Petal Throne is it's it's like the second or third role playing game. Well, yeah, because it was published by TSR, so that's why I always assumed it used D and D rules. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, the the version everybody saw was TSR. I think there was a he did his own run of like fifty copies before theirs. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, because there's Empire of the Petal Throne 75 was a box set sold by TSR, mm-hmm. uh, following an early self-publishing, self-publishing, following an early self, 
following an earlier self-publication in 1974. Mm -hmm. It was later reprinted as a single book by Different Worlds Publications in 87. Yeah. Um, there's also the Swords and Glory book from 83-84, published by Game Science. There's the Gardasail Adventures in Tecumel, 1994, by Theater of the Mind Enterprises. Mm. There's Tecumel, Empire of the Petal Throne, 2005, by Guardians of Order. And then there's Bethorm, The Plain of Tecumel, 2014, by Uni Games, mm. by Jeff D. Oh, wow. Wow. D. Jeff D. Huh. Wow. I had no idea. Huh. So which version do you have, then? The one that I've got, I think it's... Um... It's a kind of a modern edit mm -hmm. of the uh, the the second one, which was the collected book. Okay. So it's it's the first version, but I mm -hmm. think it was repackaged for PDF. Okay. Because there's a ton of stuff that you can get. RPG Now has like a whole Tecumel section. Right. And like I say, I got a bunch of them, and there's like a newsletter in that. But I think a lot of it again, because I think it was, I think it was him doing it right up until like the end. Yes, yeah, he was. He he was involved apparently right until the end. He even created the Tecumel Foundation, huh? With long with his longtime players to preserve and manage the rights related to his creations in the future. By the way, he actually wrote five uh, novels set in Tecumel. Okay. Uh, the Man of Gold, eighty four. Flame Song 85, and then Lords of Samara 2003, Prince of Skulls 2002, and A Death of Kings 2003. Okay. So you, if you're more interested in that kind of thing, you can find the novels maybe. I bet they're available probably in ebook or something because oh, they'll yeah. be long out of print, I imagine. Uh, they'll probably, RPG Now might have them because they, they, they have affiliates that do comics and books as well. Right. Um... It was apparently the first book was written, um, uh, was published by Daw Books, the one that was published in the 1980s. Yeah, 84. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Man of Gold. And that was some, that was a book published so that Tecumel fans could actually get a kind of peek in from, a, you know, from a character's perspective anyway. Right. Hmm. Oh, interesting, interesting. Okay. Well, we better call it uh, a night then. We better finish this up. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I have to say thank you, Don. Thank you very much for uh, going through this with me and uh, exploring some of the ideas and uh, making me rethink some of the aspects of exactly how a story about caravan guards would work. Mm -hmm. Because I admit I'd been thinking of it more from a tactical perspective, and I can see now that I need to think more from a, uh, a world logistics perspective instead, actually, in some ways, and also the personnel management perspective. <laughs> Yeah, because I can see that that might actually be something better than uh, what I actually had in mind, which is just a little more generic adventure style. But this is actually much more detailed and more interesting. Mm. Yeah, because it, it's it's just that idea of thinking backwards. When you say yeah, the the logistics uh, 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 perspective, yeah, perspective and human management thing, that's probably the most neglected aspects of any setting. Mm -hmm. Like we never see in Star Wars, how does the Empire recruit? We we kind of do. We've seen Imperial recruiters, kind of. That it's it's there. There was an old Marvel comic that did it, and some of the newer shows have gotten into that. Solo has one. Yeah, actually, there, there's one in the Solo movie. Yeah, that's one of the, and I think that's the first time you really 
like had anybody dealing with that kind of thing. But it's something that's mm. got to happen in that setting. Well, yeah, once they stop using clones, it has to happen. Mm-hmm. No, no question. And I agree. It's one of those things that oh, maybe we'll come back to it in a future episode and we'll we'll try to look at uh, some other logistical <laughs> aspects or that kind of thing from a fantasy or science fiction perspective. Human resources in the Empire. That would actually be interesting <laughs> to be an Imperial <laughs> HR officer. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I have a funny feeling they have a fairly short lifespan. They did, because in the, uh, what, what is it, Star Wars Resistance, the current TV show? Mm-hmm. Right. They've essentially had one. Really? They did? There's there's a character that she is basically like an Imperial HR officer, and she blew up at one point, so, yeah. Okay. Tough job. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. <laughs> well, she's dealing with those darn kids, and they're space fighters. <laughs> anyway... Thanks again, Don, and thank you for listening, folks. Uh, I hope you found this episode interesting and maybe educational, and uh, it's made you think more deeply about your own fantasy stories. And um, we'll see how my story goes. I'll keep you updated. (laughs) Anyway, good night, folks. Thanks for listening. And always remember, the world runs on ox poop. Indeed. (laughs) Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!